City. Hello and welcome to City Breaks St Petersburg, episode 14, Art and Architecture in St Petersburg. If you've been listening to previous episodes, you'll know that we've been working our way through culture in the city, talk about music and ballet and theatre, all of those things very much associated with St Petersburg. Probably lots of people who've never been know something about those aspects, but much less about the art, I'd say, except, of course, that the city is home to that most fantastic treasure house of Western art, the Hermitage. But what about Russian art? Less known about that. So, in this episode, I'm proposing to do a quick tour of the city, thinking about the architecture and what that tells us about the various periods of history that the city's lived through, and then to move on to the sort of art that you'll see if you're just out and about, you might find in the churches, that sort of thing, a little bit on that. Then, yes, of course, I'm going to deal with the Hermitage, but quite quickly, a little bit on the Russian elements to be seen there. We have, of course, already talked about the building and its role as the Winter Palace in a previous episode. In this one, I'm going to touch a little bit on the paintings and sculptures and all the other goodies to be found there. But quite briefly, really, when you consider the great expanse of gallery that it is. And then lastly, I'd like to deal with the other big Russian art museum in St. Petersburg, which is much less well known. It's called the Russian Museum. And it's actually a tour through Russian art from the 11th century to the present day. And so in many ways, the place to go really, if it's Russian art that you want to get to know a little bit about. Okay, so that's the plan. Let's think about architecture first. I think probably the best way to enjoy the very obvious beauties of St Petersburg's architecture is to do one of those canal trips that are advertised all over the city because then you get to float past those glorious Baroque buildings and palaces in their lovely fondant icing colours with all their stucco and pillars. But if you go back in time a bit, think about Peter's Cabin, which I suppose is one of the earliest examples of something built in the city, the little wooden hut that he had built for himself to live in. And then move along the riverbank from there to the Peter and Paul Fortress, begun in 1703. That, of course, is another example of what they were building in St Petersburg in the very early days. So that massive, thick-walled fortress, the Drebetsko Bastion as well, of course, part of it. Defensive, utilitarian, not that pretty. But then think that actually inside the walls of that defence, there is also the St Peter and Paul Cathedral, begun not long after the fortress itself, and in which you see a completely different style. Magnificent Baroque interiors, copied, of course, from Western Europe. And the most cursory recall of some of the most fantastic buildings in the city will remind you that they too have Baroque style. So I'm thinking Winter Palace, Peterhof, the Catherine Palace, that sort of thing. And if you do any reading at all about these buildings or indeed go on one of the boat tours with a commentary, there's one name that you'll keep hearing, and that's that of the Empress Elizabeth's favourite architect, the Italian Bartolomeo Rastrelli, who was responsible, in fact, for the design of so many of the most beautiful buildings from that era. So let's pause a moment to just do a quick biography of him. Born in 1700, Rastrelli came to St Petersburg in that wave of artists from the West, invited by Peter the Great, And in fact, he ended up working for Peter, for the Empress Anne, and Elizabeth, and Catherine, and Alexander I. It was under Catherine that he fell a little bit out of favour, but before that, he really had been designer-in-chief for the great buildings being put up. In Catherine's rule, he left the city, but was in fact invited back not too long before he died, and elected as a member 
of the Imperial Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg. He's, one of his first major designs was the Catherine Palace, built out at Saskazello. It had, in fact, been started by other architects, but the Empress Elizabeth asked him to demolish what was there and replace it with a much more grandiose, flamboyant structure. And it's said that the new building he came up with dazzled everybody, the courtiers, the ambassadors, the Empress, everyone. It had ornately decorated facades and really sumptuous interiors. And it fulfilled what was possibly the most important criterion. It became one of the most famously extravagant palaces in the world, told everybody else the standing that Russia had now achieved, and was known often as the Russian Versailles. And if that weren't enough, there's also Peterhof, also in fact sometimes called the Russian Versailles, that was started by Peter the Great, but extended by Rastrelli, who added the wings and did much of the design of the gardens and the fountains. So in fact, really the pieces that people most remember if they've spent a day there. Rastrelli it was also who designed the Smolny Convent and the Cathedral. That's often seen as one of his really greatest works. That too was built for Elizabeth at the point when she thought that she wasn't going to be Empress and thought she might become a nun. She had the convent built to live in. History moved on. She was Empress, but she still had the convent finished and in fact turned part of it into a school for girls, which was quite unusual in those days. The middle of the complex then is a Russian Orthodox cathedral and it's surrounded by a complex of monastery buildings. A beautifully designed whole, but I think it's definitely the five-domed cathedral standing in the middle, which is the pièce de résistance of the whole thing. Actually, that was planned to be the bell tower, which was going to be so high that it would have made the cathedral the tallest building in Russia. But unfortunately, before it was put up, Elizabeth died, ideas moved on, that plan was abandoned. And then, of course for people who perhaps only know one building in the whole of St Petersburg, that would be the Winter Palace, designed by a lot of different architects, but most notably Rastrelli, in a style which came to be known as Russian Baroque or Elizabethan Baroque, so ideas borrowed from the West, but with that distinctive Russian feel to it as well. Other buildings in the city designed by Rastrelli would include the Hermitage Pavilion out at Saskazello, and several of the palaces along the main canals, for example the Vorontsov Palace and the Stroganov Palace. It wasn't just for his exteriors that he was remembered. Rastrelli's interior designs were also famously lavish, Rococo style, lots of mirrors, lots of gilt, very fancy. And it's thought that in the same way that after Versailles, French designers took a certain route in terms of decorative art, so in Russia... After Rastrelli, there was a whole school of artisans and master craftsmen following his traditions, which led to things like, for example, the Fabergé jewellery and Easter eggs and things, that same idea of lavishness and excess and no expense spared. So Rastrelli and St. Petersburg, really very linked. He had been very much the Empress Elizabeth's favourite architect. When Catherine the Great came along, she perhaps thought that was starting to look a bit old hat. She favoured a style called neoclassicism, so things based a little bit more on classical Greek and Roman buildings. An example would be, say, the General Staff Building. And then, moving on to the middle of the 19th century, along came something called historicism, the idea of maybe reviving Russian style a bit more, not leaning so heavily on what they were doing in Western Europe. So a bit more traditional wooden architecture. Designs inspired by folk art. Perhaps the best example would be the Church on the Spilled Blood, which, if you remember, was built to commemorate the death of Alexander II, who had been quite reformist and was murdered 
probably because people didn't like this idea that he was taking Russia forward. And he was succeeded by his son, who built the church in memory of his father, but made very sure that the design was of an older Russian style, onion domes, multicoloured facade, etc. As if to say, under him, Russia wasn't going to lose its way and get lost in what everyone else in Europe was up to. The Art Nouveau movement affected Russia a little bit in the late 19th, early 20th century. Things like the Keshinskaya mansion, which is now the building where the Museum of Political History is. If you go inside there, you can see mosaic friezes, glazed brick, stained glass decorations. Another example, a bit closer to the town centre, would be the Singer Building on the Nevsky Prospect. Dates from 1904, with its very fancy glass cupola on top, held up by two female sculptures. I do recommend a visit there, by the way. The cafe on the top floor has the most amazing views of the city and is bang opposite the Kazan Cathedral, so you can very much feast your eyes while you're um, drinking your coffee. Architecture, of course, was very heavily affected by the Soviet era. Perhaps to see a really good example of that, if you go out to the Moskovskaya metro station, which you might be doing if you're en route to the memorial to the defenders of Leningrad, the siege memorial, get outside of that metro station, climb up the steps, and what you'll see straight away is what the Lonely Planet Guide describes as, quote, a staggeringly bombastic Stalinist beauty. So a massive great building that was designed to be the central administrative building of Stalin's Leningrad. It's large, it's quite dull, and actually again the Lonely Planet description is rather nice. Quote, this magnificently sinister building is a great example of Stalinist design, with its columns and bas-relief and an enormous frieze running across the top. Think in the episode on the Soviet era, did mention some of the big fancy metro stations that were built as a way to bring art to the people, to give the people something to enjoy, to appreciate, and perhaps to remind them of Russian history. So, for example, if you go to the Admiraltskaya tube station, you can find a set of mosaics which tell the story of the building of Peter the Great's fleet. At the Navskaya station, there's a sculptural relief of Lenin surrounded by happy proletariat. And on the platforms, there are carvings of the sort of people the Soviet Republic approved of, so miners, engineers, teachers. Literature doesn't get forgotten. At the Pushkinskaya station, there's a statue of Pushkin on the platform and a moulding of his head peering down at you as you ride up the escalators. There's another tube station near the Technological Institute which has reliefs of famous scientists and a timeline of major Russian scientific achievements. The other way in which the Soviet regime affected art, of course, is that former palaces were suddenly seized and put to use by the state, turned into meeting places for teachers or offices, or sometimes they were split up into communal apartments. I think I talked about that a little bit in the episode on Anna Akhmatova, because she indeed lived in one of those. There was damage in World War Two, of course. The main German strategy was to starve the people out, but there was bombing as well. Peterhof, for example, was bombed. But it's also thought that a building like the Church on the Spilled Blood actually owes its continued existence to the war, because there had been plans to destroy it, but they were never carried out because the German invasion intervened. In the post-Stalinist era, there was a bit more respect for heritage, so a little bit less destruction of pre-revolutionary buildings. But there was also, of course, the construction of all those many high-rise Soviet apartment buildings, thankfully mainly outside the historic city centre. But you'll certainly notice them if you do visit the suburbs. And then 
post-1990s, after the fall of communism, of course there's been a movement to restore many imperial buildings which had fallen into disrepair after pretty much 70 years of neglect. That was particularly done around 2003, which was the 300th anniversary of the city, and the whole project has been helped along by the fact that the city centre was given UNESCO World Heritage status. There have been some new buildings too, of course, not that many right in the centre, but think about things like the Mariinsky 2, so the new Mariinsky Theatre, next to the old one. But I think because it was recognised how beautiful the city centre is, there was quite a lot of opposition to too much new build. There was, for example, a proposal to put a big 400 metres high skyscraper near the Smolny Cathedral, but there were huge protests about that, locally and worldwide, and eventually that project was abandoned and it was built outside the city centre. Before we get to the art galleries, I did just want to mention the idea that there's so much art to be seen just while you're out and about in the city. If you're visiting the big churches and cathedrals, you can't help but see lots and lots of goodies. And I want to mention particularly the very Russian word, icon, a work of art that's used in worship. I found a definition of it in one of the guidebooks which went as follows, quote, a sanctified object which helps the faithful sense God's presence. And sure enough, in all the big cathedrals, you'll find icons, religious works of art, some of them quite small, but not all. There are life-size ones as well. Probably the most famous is the one in the Kazan Cathedral, the icon of Our Lady of Kazan, which is a site of pilgrimage for Russian Orthodox believers. And you'll find, whenever you go in there, whatever time of day, you'll find a queue of people who've come, some of them just for once in their lives, from some distance, to kiss the icon of Our Lady of Kazan. And linked to the word icon is then iconostasis, the word I kept seeing. So I looked it up and discovered that it means a screen on which icons are displayed. It's often in a church to separate the nave from the sanctuary, and it's seen as a symbol of the division between earth and heaven. The screen itself is usually a thing of beauty, often delicately carved wood, often gilded. The most crazily over-the-top ones are seen in places like the Church of St Peter and St Paul, for example, where the whole thing is in fabulous gold. And then typically there are rows of icons on it, often in a set order, so the outer rows will have pictures of the prophets and the apostles, and on the inner central panels then you'll get the Holy Trinity, or the Virgin Mary, or Christ enthroned. Perhaps an icon of the patron saint of that particular church. Apart from the icons, I think the other thing that you'll notice straight away in the city's magnificent biggest churches, St Isaac's, the Church on the Spilled Blood, Kazan Cathedral, is the absolute abundance of frescoes on the walls. Sometimes it seems as if almost all the walls and all the ceiling space is covered with works of art. It's really quite overwhelming when you first see it. And there's often a pattern to that as well. So in the Russian Orthodox faith, the west end of the church is associated with sin. So at that end, you might see frescoes of, for example, the apocalypse. And the eastern end represents the light of truth. So that's where you'll see paintings of the saints, of Jesus, of Mary. I do think that even if you didn't go to either of the big galleries, you'd come home from St. Petersburg feeling that you'd seen lots and lots of art. But anyway, now's a good time to move on to the galleries. So I'm going to start with the Hermitage, and here comes the problem. What to say about so magnificent a gallery and so immensely huge a collection? Well, let's start with the word Hermitage, which is comes from the French word for a place of solitude, 
because the original very small hermitage was built exactly as that, as a refuge for the emperors and empresses, which is ironic when you think that now it's probably the busiest building in the city and attracts millions of visitors every year. The introductory message from the museum's director in the guidebook which I bought makes it very clear that they think of themselves really as a guardian of the world's heritage kept on Russian soil. So it's that mix of the Russian and the other, the best of both, all in one building. So here's what he wrote to try and sum up what he thought it is that the museum is trying to do. Quote, The ghosts of great artists, famous and anonymous, wander the halls of the hermitage together with the shades of tsars and courtiers, soldiers and diplomats, writers and revolutionaries, who have left a living memory of themselves here forever. The museum is so huge and the impressions it generates so varied that it takes many visits to get to know it. Strolling through the hermitage is probably the greatest pleasure offered to us, to pass unhurriedly from hall to hall, from the historical state rooms to the masterpieces of ancient sculpture or Dutch painting, thinking as you go about Matisse or Napoleon, Rembrandt or Stolypine, and, inevitably, about Catherine, whose will and taste brought the museum into being. So yes, the answer to the question, how did this all begin, is very much with Catherine the Great. She liked paintings, she was interested in art, and she knew how to get what she wanted. So, for example, she knew an art dealer in St. Petersburg, one Gotskovsky, who was in debt, and so she used that, and all her great resources, of course, to bargain with him, and to get him to secure for her a set of 225 pictures, which were actually destined for Frederick the Great. He was going to put them in his palace in Berlin, Sanssouci, but they came Catherine's way instead, and those 225 pictures formed the start of her collection. This was in 1764. She thought big, so her next move was to contact her ambassadors throughout Europe and ask them to keep her informed about interesting art sales or when estates were going to be broken up and sold. We know, for example, that her ambassador in Paris, one Galitzin, procured a Rembrandt for her, The Return of the Prodigal Son, which today is one of the most acclaimed paintings in the entire gallery. We know that she engaged an architect, to a French architect in fact, to draw up plans for a big extension to the hermitage, because she could see that it was too small to house the collection that she was intending to have. And so it came into being. The collection grew fast. She bought up whole collections from lots of different countries, France, the Netherlands, Saxony. She bought a large chunk of Robert Walpole's estate when he died. So that 10 years after she'd first started the collection, so in 1774, she had 2,000 works or so. We're told in the guidebook that this included, quote, apart from paintings, she acquired a host of drawings, engravings, numismatic items, collections of cameos and books, including the libraries of Diderot and Voltaire. A certain Mr Parkinson visited in 1792 and wrote about it in his diary, A Tour of Russia, Siberia and the Crimea, and wrote the following, quote, The apartments as well as the galleries are crowded with paintings, good and bad placed promiscuously together. There are several valuable pieces in this number from the Italian school, but the finest are from the Dutch and Flemish. I shall only mention the Adoration and the Bacchus by Rubens, the Wounded Adonis by Van Dyck, three pieces by Tenier, two landscapes, and a third affair, the largest picture he ever painted. And a bit later on, he tells us that he noticed the Empress had had a portrait of herself painted. Quote, 
I was very much struck with the portrait of the Empress in the uniform of the guards and on horseback as she was habited on the day she mounted the throne. That picture is, of course, still there for you to see today. Acquisitions grew and grew through the 19th century. After the 1917 revolution, many private collections were seized and nationalised, whole collections taken from places like the Stroganov Palace and the Sheremtiev and the Yusupov Palaces. In World War II, there had to be a detailed evacuation plan. Almost every work was numbered and sorted and packed away for the whole 900 days of the siege. Some of it was sent out to the Urals for much safer storage. A lot more was kept in the cellars of the building. And although the Hermitage was bombed, it wasn't badly damaged. And by and large, the collection survived intact. When the collection was opened up and the building restored after the fall of communism, it was discovered that there were many extra paintings had come into the collection from Germany and Eastern Europe particularly, things that had been seized, of course, by Russian troops. So for all these reasons, today the gallery is really a treasure house of European art. Whichever school of painting or whichever country, at least European country, you're interested in, you will certainly find in there some of the best paintings to be seen anywhere. And in addition, the Hermitage holds about 20 special exhibitions every year. OK, so that brings me on to what is there to see there. Oh my goodness, where do you start? I think perhaps by crossing things off your list. My personal advice would be that if you want to see the Imperial Apartments, that's a visit in its own right. Don't try and do that and see the artworks because you really won't get through without undergoing total fatigue. And then I think it's very much a question of do some research beforehand either decide that you're going to wander at will until you're tired and just see what you see, or perhaps that you're going to choose from the guidebook the things that you really don't want to miss and make a beeline for those and just march past everything else. It does take some doing. If it's the Impressionists you want to see, you might like to remember that they're actually in a completely separate building. Also maybe worth a completely separate visit on a different day. OK, so I decided I would come up with a little short list of the things that I most enjoyed seeing. Very personal, very much possibly won't be your short list, but here goes anyway. I liked to see things really connected with Russian history, so I enjoyed seeing the portraits of Catherine the Great, of Nicholas I, both of those full-length portraits in full regalia, and the one of Alexander I on horseback. If you've read any books about Russian history, you'll very possibly recognise them, because they tend to pop up on the covers of said books. I also liked the 1812 gallery, which I think I mentioned in a previous episode, where there are paintings of all the generals and all the important soldiers from the Napoleonic Wars. I just enjoyed the way that they were laid out one after another after another and really reflected the pride of Russia for having defeated Napoleon. Sticking with the very Russian things, if I had to pick out a couple of trinkets to represent the fact that it isn't only paintings, I think I'd choose the peacock clock, which is talked about in all the guidebooks is definitely one of the must-see things. It's in the old part of the original Hermitage building in which Catherine the Great liked to retire. A crazily ornate, exotic, mechanical folly, golden peacock perched among golden leaves on a bronze tree, a whole lot of other forest animals, an owl, a cock rooster, a squirrel, etc. A working clock, of course, that's one of the mushrooms at the base of the thing. It's just mad. It's totally excessive. It's really beautiful. And then perhaps a lesser well-known but equally crazy thing was a little snuff-box called the Stones of the East Snuff-Box, acquired for Catherine the Great in 1795 
It has a silhouette of her on the lid, and it's surrounded then by a collection of precious and semi-precious stones. But the combined effect is really quite a vulgar array, because they've put on there anything they could find in a whole array of clashing colours. Diamonds, rubies, sapphires, emeralds, agates, amber, turquoise, the list goes on. A glorious mismatch of colours, completely over the top, and it is, after all, only a snuff box. Considering the paintings, three that are mentioned a lot in the guidebooks as not to be missed are Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son, described in the Lonely Planet Guide as a, quote, moving portrait of contrition and forgiveness. And so I found it. It really is a very thoughtful painting of such an emotional moment. Then they talk always about Da Vinci's Madonna and Child and the Caravaggio painting, The Lute Player, which Caravaggio himself thought was his best work. If I had to pick a couple of paintings that I just really liked, which don't feature on the top ten lists, that would be one called The Stolen Kiss by Jean-Honoré Fragonard, which is a lovely, furtive, romantic moment of A Stolen Kiss, as you would imagine, painted in the 1780s. And I very much like the Canaletto painting, The Reception of the French Ambassador. A large, detailed canvas with one of those lavish, diplomatic moments, the French Ambassador arriving in Venice. And then my absolute top favourite, I think probably is mentioned in all the guidebooks, but I loved it, and that was the corridor known as Raphael's Loggia. I liked it because it was so beautiful, a long pillared corridor to walk down with copies of Raphael paintings floor to ceiling, beautiful muted colours centering on a lovely eggshell blue colour. And the reason I liked it was it was beautiful, but I liked the way it came into being as well, which is that Catherine the Great had been to Rome, she'd been to the Vatican, she'd seen the original Raphael Loggia, which was built there, and she had said, possibly rather petulantly, I want one of those. And sure enough, artists were commissioned, an architect was taken on, and the whole thing was brought into being. Again, quite mad. The scale of the place is such that you're quite likely to feel overwhelmed, unless you're very strict with yourself about how much time you're going to spend there, and about picking out the things that you really want to see, and not just wandering past acre after acre of things that you don't really quite know what you're looking at. But... A lot of people are with you on that. I found a quote by Prokofiev, no less, who described how he felt after he'd been on a rather too long visit to the Hermitage. And he wrote that, quote, By the time we got out, we were completely exhausted. Truman Capote, the writer, was there too in the 1950s. And he too describes the exhaustion of the visit. Quote, Some six kilometres later, the group, its ranks thinned by fatigue cases, stumbled into the last exhibit hall. Weak-legged after two hours of inspecting Egyptian mummies and Italian Madonnas, craning their necks at excellent old masters, excruciatingly hung, poking about the sarcophagus of Alexander Nevsky, and marvelling over a pair of Peter the Great's Goliath large boots, made, said the guide, by this progressive man with his very own hands. So be warned. And then lastly, the Russian Museum. I recommend definitely going on a different day, but a museum full of the very most Russian of paintings and chronologically arranged handily so you can really get an overview of Russian art if you follow around in the order that they intend you to. It has its origins in the collection of Alexander I, but it's now said to be the world's largest collection of Russian art anywhere. And as its own guidebook tells us, quote, the enormous collection of 400,000 exhibits offers a fascinating and comprehensive insight into the whole history of Russian culture 
from the 11th to the 21st century. 400,000 exhibits or not, it still feels much smaller than the Hermitage. In the earliest rooms, of course, what you'll see is icons, the most well-known one being something called the Angel with the Golden Hair, which dates from the early 13th century. Beautiful face with huge, soulful, almond-shaped eyes and golden threads woven into the hair. Really beautiful. And in the same room, or possibly the room next door, there is, for example, an icon of St. Boris and St. Gleb, they being the two men who are credited with introducing Christianity to Russia in the mid-14th century. You'll see other religious ornaments, for example, gold and silver gospel covers, icons, often icon settings encrusted with precious jewels and stones. This is the place to see that famous picture of Peter the Great interrogating his son Alexei at Peterhof, somewhere before he had him murdered. It's also the place to see a picture of Peter himself on his deathbed, painted by Ivan Nitikin, one of the painters who had worked for Peter the Great. He'd been sent to Italy by him and come back to Russia then to practice his art. You can see portraits of people you know, or know of rather, like Catherine the Great in a painting labelled Catherine the Great in the Temple of the Goddess of Justice, and also of landscapes which will be familiar, for example the Palace Embankment and the Peter and Paul Fortress. From the early 19th century there are painters by Russian painters but influenced by the Romantics. These painters of course had often travelled to Italy and learnt from the Romantic painters there. And one of the very best-known paintings is by Karl Brulov. It's called The Last Day of Pompeii. Guidebook actually describes it as the most important work in the whole history of Russian painting. It's a massive canvas, took the painter five years to complete, and won first prize at the Paris Art Salon in the year that it was painted, making Brulov one of the artists who'd studied at the St. Petersburg Fine Art Academy, who actually got international renown and recognition. Also from the first half of the 19th century, some paintings depicting rural life in Russia, things like a painting called The Threshing Barn, for which we know that the artist went to a village in deepest Russia and chose a family he wanted to paint, set them to work in their barn, sawed a hole in the barn so that he could sit outside looking in and paint what he saw. And there are also a lot more Russian landscapes with titles like Reapers or Fishermen or Winter Landscape. Later in the 19th century comes a collection of paintings by perhaps the best-known Russian painter, by which I mean best-known outside Russia, one Ilya Repin. There are two portraits of Tolstoy painted by him, one showing the author writing at his desk and one showing him standing barefoot outside. There's a painting of Rubenstein, also by Repin, and his most famous painting is one called The Barge Haulers on the Volga, painted in about 1870 showing a chain of surf labourers in the hot sun and an unforgiving landscape trying to heave a barge out of a river, which was described as, quote, an unrivalled portrait of human misery and enslavement in rural Russia. He also painted an immense canvas called The Ceremonial Sitting of the State Council on the 7th of May 1901, showing some 80 actual councillors It's really 80 mini-portraits of these people, all in the setting. And he captured the political unrest that was sweeping through the city in his painting entitled The 17th of October 1905. It's a street scene, people at a demonstration, a sort of a mix of enthusiasm of the surging crowd pushing forward with an overtone of danger, something could go badly wrong. There are paintings by various artists who were grouped together in a movement which is often called The Wanderers in English, 
group of radical younger intellectuals who formed in the 1860s after the serfs had been liberated, wanted to make a statement that Russian painting was too bound up in what the Tsar wanted to see in Russian history and that they really wanted to paint something more realistic than that. They began travelling through Russia, hence their name the Wanderers, and their goal was to show what they thought of as unvarnished contemporary life in Russia. So they wanted to paint what was actually happening in Russia. And they wanted to take art out of the capitals and into the countryside, and did so often controversially. So, for example, there's a painting called Vladimirka Road, which to us looks like a landscape painting, but is in fact full of political content, because although it looks like just another road, it was in fact the road along which prisoners who were going to exile in Siberia were marched. That painting, in fact, isn't in St. Petersburg, it's in a gallery in Moscow, but it gives you an idea of what the movement was about. They were important because they represented new ideas about art, and also because it's thought that their work really led on to be a precursor of the socialist realism, which was prevalent in the Soviet era. Moving into the early 20th century, you can see Russian painters influenced by Impressionism or by Cubism. And from the Soviet era, you can see paintings with titles like Textile Workers or Collective Farm Celebration, painted really to extol the achievements of socialism. So that one, the Collected Farm Celebration, shows a table laden with food and drink and surrounded by happy, well-dressed collective farmers. And there's a banner in the background on which is the wording, in Russian of course, life has become better, life has become merrier. So art as political slogan. And in the last few rooms, there are some paintings dating from the 1980s and 90s, which begin to show how an underground, separate, unofficial culture was beginning to flourish alongside the demise of communism. If you want to bring things bang up to date, there are two galleries which I didn't visit, but which I believe are still in existence. One is the Arata Museum of Contemporary Art, which has got 2,000 works painted from the 1950s up until the present day. And there's a second museum, opened much more recently, in the last few years, I think, called the Street Art Museum. It's a bus ride out of town to get there, but it's a place where the work of modern street artists is displayed including one called Pasha 183, who was known when he was alive as the Russian Banksy because he used to turn up and paint things anonymously and just leave them to be found. It's believed that he died in 2013. So that brings me pretty much to the end of today's episode. I hope that I've convinced you, if you didn't know much about art in Russia generally or in St. Petersburg and thought of St. Petersburg as much more closely linked with music and ballet, I hope I've shown you that actually there is plenty there to be seen to be enjoyed, just for what it looks like, but also to teach quite a lot about Russian history and culture in this most interesting of cities where, although it's only 300 years old, there are so many completely different phases and eras all jostling against each other. A little familiarity with the architecture, the artworks to be found in the churches, and the goodies in the hermitage, and of course the Russian museum, everything from icons up to Soviet art and post-Soviet art, really tells you a lot about St. Petersburg. Okay, so, so much for that. Next week's episode, for which I very much hope you'll join me, I'm going to move on to literature. I think we'll have an episode all about Pushkin, because he does seem to be everywhere in St. Petersburg, from the stuffed version of him in the Pushkin Cafe on the Nevsky Prospect, to his former apartments, to the village named after him just outside, etc, etc. So, I hope you'll join me for that. And meanwhile, I'm just going to sign off by thanking you very much for listening. Spasibo and 
wishing you goodbye in Russian. Do svidaniya.